Good morning. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here, and so thank you very much for inviting me back. And I look forward to having tea and coffee with you all after the service and catching up. You'll see our family's a little bit bigger than last time. Um, Peter is the quiet one, Sarah is a little bit bigger too, and you may hear her several times. But let's begin our service by considering Psalm 8. Psalm 8. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, that all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Sometimes in our lives when we look at the amazing things of the world and we have a look around, we can feel small. When you look up at the stars and the planets and you look at the mountains, we're tiny. Yet when we gather, we gather knowing that the Lord sees us. Sometimes in our lives we feel ignored and insignificant. Yet as we gather, it's because we know that the Lord does know us and cares. When we watch the news and listen to the problems of the world, we feel like our problems are too small to matter. Yet as we gather, it's because they do. And the Lord does take care of us. So when we consider all these things, it truly is amazing to think that we who are sat here, both collectively and individually, are the focus of the Lord's attention. The object of his love and generosity. It truly is amazing that when we consider all things, God is mindful of us. He knows us. He sees us. He cares. And he is here. So let us stand now and sing hymn number 12, All Creatures of Our God and King.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty Redeemer, giver of life, sustainer and healer, your care for us is something we treasure. That we know your presence and hear your voice brings us great joy, comfort and security. As we are gathered here this morning, united in your spirit, may we rejoice in your presence. May we hear your voice and know your touch. For those of us who feel weak and burdened, may you strengthen us and reassure us. For those of us with much to thank you for, glorify yourself in our speech that we may be an encouragement to others. For those of us who feel ashamed and distant, may we know your love and receive your forgiveness the love and forgiveness shown in us through your Son, by his compassion, that we would be restored. In all things, Lord, we are gathered here in the name of your Son, with the desire to be like him, to follow his example and be a source of hope, a light in the world around us. May you be glorified in our singing. May you rejoice in our presence as we praise your holy name. And together we now pray the prayer that your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. We hold us out in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as the kingdom,
boys, do you want to come up? Now, are there any other children I haven't spotted? Now, I have three things for you today. Three things I'd like to show you and us to think about. And then miracles in the world around us that maybe we just take for granted. Okay? So I'm going to start with one thing. I've brought with me an accurate scale model. Now, what do you think this could be a scale model of? It's a very good scale model of a tennis ball. In fact, it's a perfect scale model of a tennis ball. But if I wanted to represent something very big, what do you think I could stand for? Very good. Well done. So let's say this is the world. Okay? Who wants to hold the world? Nobody wants to hold the world? Go on. Go on. Come on. You hop, come on, hold the world. If you want to stand here. Thank you. Now, we have a marble here. What do you think the marble could represent? Go on. The moon. Okay, it's a little bit bigger than the moon would be, but do you want to come hold up the moon? Okay. Now, the moon's about two meters away on this scale. So we'll say about here. Okay. We've got that. Right, so there's the moon, the earth, there's the moon. Where would the sun be? Well, let's start with the one. How big do we think on this scale the sun is going to be? About 100 of those. Okay. Now, I have something that we can do for the size of the sun. Can you hold the sun for me? Okay. Right. What I need you to do, if you could take this end of the string. Okay. Now, if I'm holding onto the string, you take one end. Oh. <laughs> Lovely. But it has got an end. There is an end. Here we go. Can you take that end? Now, you just keep going. Can you walk away? It's not often you said. Just hold the string. Keep walking. Keep going. Thank you. Keep going. Keep going. Yep, that's fine. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Oh, we've got a little knot. Nice little half hitch. Oh, well. Let me just pull that out. No, no, you're okay. Keep going. Oh, keep going. Yep, that's it. You keep going. No, we haven't got to the end yet. Oh, there we are. Yep. If you now, that there, on this scale, would be the size of the sun. Seven and a half meters long. Can you imagine if we were actually stood this close to the sun? What would happen to us? Uh, we, would burn up. we would burn up, wouldn't we? Hmm? Even a mile away. I'm thinking even two miles away, we'd burn up. Okay, now, obviously we want to do this to scale. So where should, where should we go to get this to the right distance? Anyone has a guess? How far away? A little bit further. We could get to the back door of the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. Okay, that's how far away the sun would be. Yet the amazing thing is, is as you said, if we're too close, what would happen? What would happen if we're too far away? We'd freeze. We're actually just the right distance to get the right amount of heat and the right amount of light for the animals to grow, for the plants to grow, and for you and me. Because we don't get burnt up when we go out in the sun, do we? Hopefully not. Some of you might. Okay. You know? Thank you. Now, on this little planet, the Earth, which we read in the psalm this morning, it says the Lord placed in the skies. If we read in Isaiah, it says the Lord created the world to be inhabited. But if he just put us on this empty Earth, just ourselves and maybe with a bit of water, do you think we could have lived? What else do we need for life? We need food. What else do we need? Yeah? Hmm? We need the plants. We need air. We need food. We need water. And the great thing is we've got the water purifies itself going through the clouds. We've got the trees purifying the air. 
And if we eat the plants, does that mean they're all gone? You do eat plants. I hope you eat some of your plants. Hmm? Do you eat your vegetables? No, you don't eat your vegetables. <laughs> okay. Hmm? Yes. There is always an endless supply of green beans, isn't there? Doesn't matter how many green beans you eat, there will always be another one. No? You like fish and chips. Okay. No. We have potatoes. That's good. There we are. Thank you. No, no. Right. Okay, now, this is the next thing I want to show you then. So we have this planet that is exactly the right distance to get the right heat and everything else. Thank you. And isn't it amazing that this one marble is just the right distance away, that when it goes in front of the sun, it blocks out all the light? So the difference there. Now, this is my next thing I want us to think about. I have here a seed. And this is an amazing thing too. Because, do we know what kind of seed that is? Have a guess. It's not a sunflower seed. It's something I ate this morning. Shall I help you? It's an apple seed. Okay. Now, if I plant this in the ground, what will I get? An apple tree. Can I get an apple tree by doing anything else other than planting an apple seed? No. If I want an orange tree, I have to plant an orange. Okay, so everything that you need to grow an apple tree is in this little seed. You put it in the soil, and if it gets water and light, it grows an apple tree. But do you know something else? If this grows up, now, which of you are good at maths? You're good at maths. Now, let's say in this apple there were six seeds. I plant all the seeds, and it grows up to be an apple tree with 20 apples. And each of those apples has six seeds in it. <gasps> oh. Six times two would be 12, but six times 20. So this one seed could produce a hun- one tree with 20 apples on that could produce 120 more trees. It's a very small thing to have all that in, isn't it? Isn't there more than one seed in the about five or six, you're right. Yeah. But just think about that. So when we plant that... Now, Jesus says, tells the story of a farmer in Mark who when he plants his seeds, he can't make them grow, but it rains and the sun shines and they grow and they produce crop that we can eat, but also seed that we can plant to produce more crop. And it's really good. Now, one last thing for us to think about. Have any of you ever cut yourselves? What happened? Is that you now? Are you bleeding? No. What happens when you cut yourself? Have you ever hurt yourself? You bashed your knees. Are they still sore? Did it fix itself? Oh, yeah. Some bruises. It's always a sign of a good life. And on the other knee. Yes. Oh, very good. No. Oh, very good. No. What happens when you cut yourself? And then it stops. And what happens to your skin? It heals up, doesn't it? See, if you've broken your leg and you go to hospital and they hold it in place for you, what happens to the bones in your leg? They heal up. This is all little miracles of life that we have all around us. Because if I was to get my chicken bone at dinner time and snap it in two and then stick it back together, would it go back into one piece? Why not? Because the chicken's dead. And it wouldn't take time. But it doesn't matter if dead things don't grow back. Dead things don't produce. Okay? And yet we are told that the Lord knitted us together. And we see that when our skin goes back together, it knits itself back up. When our bones are held in place, they knit themselves back together. These are all miracles of life that we kind of take for granted. We know that if we eat fruit, there'll be more fruit. 
we know that if I hurt ourselves, for the most part, we'll repair ourselves. And we know that unless things change drastically, that on this planet there is air to breathe, there's water to drink, and there's food to eat. And there's just enough sun, okay? And there's just enough darkness. Now, all of these things I think sometimes we take for granted. But I also think there are things we can be grateful to God for. Be grateful to God that when you cut yourself, you know your skin's going to heal and you're not going to bleed forever. Okay? That when you eat a piece of fruit, there will be another piece of fruit. Yeah. Okay? And then when we wake up in the morning, there'll be sometimes sun and sometimes rain. But just enough so that we can keep on living. Which is really good. Something to just add for the parents to think about a bit more is when I was trying to get an apple seed this morning, I had to eat three apples to find one seed. Which was bizarre, because if you eat an apple off the tree, you'd expect, as he says, six or seven seeds. And my first thought was, they must have been forced. If you force something to grow, it's not going to produce any seed. If you let seeds take their time and grow, then they will grow up to be something that's full of fruit and full of potential. But a bit of patience and a bit of time. Okay, before we... Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life, the ability to play and to have fun, to eat and drink. We thank you, Lord, for our pets and the other animals, for the air, the trees and the mountains. Thank you, Lord, that our bodies heal themselves. Thank you, Lord, for our friends and for family. Lord, you have given us so much and you've given us the ability to do so much. Help us to live life to the full and to live out our potential. To live in your presence with your joy, peace and happiness. Amen. Okay, We're going to sing We Give Thanks, We Count Our Blessings.
We only have one Bible reading this morning, that's from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to live alone. I will make a suitable companion to help him. So he took some soil from the ground and formed all the animals and all the birds. Then he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and that is how they all got their names. So the man named all the birds and all the animals, but not one of them was a suitable companion to help him. Then the Lord God made the man fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh. He formed a woman out of the rib and brought her to him. Then the man said, At last, here is one of my own kind, bone taken from my bone and flesh from my flesh. Woman is her name because she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're perfect. Now, I'm happy for you to have your own idea of what perfection is, but imagine that you are what you believe yourself to be perfect. Exactly as God created you to be, handcrafted by him, moulded and made, exactly as you should be. Imagine that the world around you is also perfect. Now that's a bit harder, isn't it? It's one thing to imagine ourselves, but imagine living in the perfect world where everything is as it should be and everything is as God made it. Everything is as God desired it to be. Can't help but think that would be an amazing place to live. It'd be an amazing person to be. And here we read of Adam handcrafted by God in the perfect garden. This garden is not just any garden, it's the source of life for the world. For four rivers flow out of this place and then give nourishment to everywhere else. Adam and God have a face-to-face relationship. Sounds idyllic. 
And yet it's in this situation that God looks upon Adam and says, it's not good that he's alone. He needs help. It should strike us. It's a, it is quite striking. It's the first time in the Bible God has said something is not good. It's not good that Adam's alone. He needs help. We might wonder how this can be. But in some senses, before we even consider the text further, it should be a sign of encouragement. We were not created to be super people. We were not created to be invincible, self-sufficient. That Adam, handmade by God in the perfect world, with a perfect relationship with God, was not created to be alone. Nor was he created to be able to do everything by himself. I don't know about you, but it's reassuring because there are times in my life when I have been in that place of need and I've thought, if only I was a different person. If only if I was stronger, if only if I was more able, or if only I hadn't mucked things up last week. And I'm left thinking, if only I was who God had created me to be. And you fall into that trap almost of self-condemnation, of some sort of belief that if just we were who God intended us to be, we would never have any problems. But we see that when God created Adam, he was created needing help. We were not created to be alone. We were created to be in a relationship. Now, before anyone races ahead, please note that I'm not saying, or am I going to say, that we were all created to be married. And marriage is a very particular type of relationship. And we will come to that as we look at the text later. But there's Adam needing help. The question then is then asked, well, what kind of help? See, if, if it was Adam that was saying, it's not good that I'm on my own, I would like someone else here, then he would be forever criticized through commentaries and priests and ministers for down the generation saying, did he not realize that everything he needs is in God? That his relationship with God should be all-sufficient, all-providing, and therefore he has no need of anyone else? Do we not have little armbands that say fully reliant on God, that say to us that our relationship with God should be sufficient? Outside of that, we have no needs. And we would just criticize Adam from day in, day out. But it's not Adam that says this. It is God who says of Adam, it's not good that he's alone, he needs help. If we'd read from the first verse in Genesis, we would read of a very generous God. A God who whatever he says is done. A God who whatever he begins is completed. A God upon whom we can rely. Because if everything he says is done, then when he makes a promise to us, we can trust that that promise will be fulfilled. He does it in a way that enables life. He doesn't command things into being by instructing them and telling them what to do. The phrase all the way through chapter 1 is, let it be. Let there be light. Let there be trees. Let there be life. He creates all that is needed for life. And he gives life the freedom to grow and to expand and to reproduce. 
He enables things to live and to have a potential and to have a purpose. And at the end of chapter 1, we would read that God then gave all of that to us. It's interesting that we often hear the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But in Genesis chapter 1, it could be said, for God so loved us that he created an entire world for us to live on and gave it to us. Everything the man has needed until this point has been given to him by God. Everything that's required, not only for his own life, but for the sustainment of life around, he's given that responsibility to the man to take care of. So this almighty, all-powerful God who can do all things, who enables life, who can call things into being, looks upon Adam and says, it's not good that he's alone. He needs help. And that help wasn't just more God. He needed someone else. Now, if we translate the word helper as help me to the next part, it seems a bit strange. So God has decided it's not more God that Adam needs. So they then look to the animals. Now, if we go down a certain traditional route, the idea that Adam was looking for a mate, that seems quite bizarre, that they'd look through the animals. But that's maybe a mistranslation or, of the word helper. Now, there are many animals that are very friendly towards us. There are many animals with whom that we can take solace in. I know people that have pets, have dogs, have cats, find great comfort in them. But no, there wasn't anything found amongst the animals suitable as a helper, as a companion. So God created Eve. What Adam needed was someone like himself. Someone who was similar to himself. Now, God could have created Eve in the same way he created Adam, out of the dust of the ground. But he didn't. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, if we just think about the word helper. The word helper, and this, sorry I skipped a bit. The word helper throughout the Bible is translated as the help we receive from God. God is described as a helper using the same word, as well as the help we receive from each other. It could, in some places, be translated saviour. Now, there's a thought we could come back to. That man, it's not good that he's alone, he needs a saviour. And the saviour of man was a woman. But, let's leave that alone for the moment. But he creates someone who is like him. This word helper cannot be used to deem someone who is greater than him or lesser than him. But by creating someone that's come out of his own body, there is nothing in Eve that Adam can say, well, I don't like that because that's different to me. Or I'm not sure about this because that's different to me. Because everything that was in Eve was from Adam. And just as we read in chapter 1 that we all have one source of life, all of us gathered here have one parent. Sometimes in families you'll say, oh, he's just like his mother's side, or he's just like his father's side, he's not like me. Or, and it creates family arguments, saying, oh, well, if he was more like his dad, there'd be less of an issue. Or maybe he's too much like his dad, that's the problem. They're not like us, they're different. But because Eve came out of Adam, 
There could never be this argument between Cain and Abel or with any of the others that, oh, that's a different creation, that's something else that's going on. So we have one saviour, we have one Lord who is the source of all life. And in the one man, in the one Adam, we all have the one genealogy. We cannot turn to anyone on this earth and say to them, but you are not one of us. You are not like us. We are all from the one. At this time when refugees are swarming, to use David Cameron's phrase, which is a very unfortunate one, a fleeing would have been a more appropriate one. A fleeing danger, insecurity and pain. They are coming to countries and some people are saying, but who are these others? They are not others. They are us. They have the same parentage as we do. For we are of the one family. It maybe shouldn't surprise us too much that actually we were created to be in a relationship. For after all, does it not say that God created us in his own image? The one God whose Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Father and Son are not titles or names, they are relationships. And we are told that in the Spirit we have life. This one God who himself is a community of relationships yet is just the one God. It's something that perplexes and the mystery of the Trinity is something that we could talk about for hours. At which point I would sit down and let someone else do the talking. We were created in the image of God. Created to be in relationship. But not just passive relationship, not just acknowledgement relationships, but Relationships where we can depend upon other. Meaningful relationships. Relationships that recognize that we need help. Relationships where we recognize that our purpose is to be help. Sometimes if we're not sure what our purpose is in life, it's worth just remembering that. God creates Eve. Now in terms of producing more children, this is helpful. And then we kind of have this sweet interjection about marriage. Marriage is a special relationship. It does not say anywhere in the Bible that we were all created to be married. In fact, Paul, if you were to read his writings, seems to be quite down on marriage in places. He very much encourages us as one body of Christ, but seems to think unless the time is right, it's not ever a good time to really get married. He thinks that when you get married, you get too caught up in family issues. People who are not married still have a family in us. That is why we are the one family, the one body of Christ. But in marriage, there is an exclusive relationship. I want to pause for a moment. I'm going to indulge myself for a second. Because there's something peculiar about this text that I think we've all missed. Or I think all of society is missed. And it's one of those things that's bothered me since I was a child. Adam, man, was on his own and he needed help. So God created Eve. And then we have this little insert into the narrative about marriage. Adam and Eve couldn't have left parents. Neither of them had parents. That the man is to leave his mother father and cling to his wife. It doesn't say anywhere in here about the woman. 
And yet I've grown up in a society and a culture where when you get married, the woman is expected to give up everything and cling to her husband. Historically, when, we got, when pe- people got married because of inheritance, the woman lost what she had and the man got to keep all that he had. And the woman became part of the man's life. Just think for a moment how different our society would have been if we'd emphasized these couple of verses. The ones that say it's the man that has to give up everything and cling to his wife. That it is the man who was insufficient on his own and needed a woman. You might think that's being a bit facetious. And yes, I am. But every now and then, when we hear on the news people standing up and saying, this is what God meant for marriage and this is what God intended... It's nice just to have the odd moment to sit back and think, I think you've missed something. It would be a very different world if we'd seen the women as the saviors of men. It would have been a very different world if it was the men that the emphasis was put upon as the ones that had to leave everything to be clung to their wives. But the world we live in sees the man as the protector, the provider. These wouldn't be so bad things, but then we see that the man is somehow better than the woman, is stronger than the woman, is hierarchical than the woman. There's none of this here. Adam and Eve were to mutual help. They were in a mutual relationship. I tend to take the opinion, why is it that there is all this focus on Adam and it doesn't say anywhere about Eve or women having to leave their mothers and fathers? It's almost prophetic. It's also for the same reason that nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that a woman should love her husband. But it says repeatedly that husbands should love their wives. It's almost a recognition that women are better at it. That somehow women will naturally love their husbands. That somehow women are better at putting their families before themselves. And that somehow those of us that are men who get a bit puffed up about our status, a bit carried away about our responsibilities and expect our families to be there for us, are being reminded, you're meant to love them too. You're meant to be giving up what you have for them. You might think these are large generalizations. But in the news over recent years and in many commentaries, I've read very many sweeping generalizations that have pushed the other argument. A mutual relationship. It's kind of scary in today's culture to think that there would be one person that you bind yourself to. Most people change jobs after five or six years. The average life attendancy at a church is likewise. Many people after five or six years move on from a church. The idea that somehow you would bind yourself to one person for an entire life, for a lot of people, is too much. A weekend away is usually long enough. The idea that you'd give up everything and be bound to that person. When I got married to Mo, we, put, we did the candle thing where we had the three candles, and we had two candles lit either side, and one candle in the middle that was unlit. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, and we both, in our heads, had said to them, right, what we'll do is we'll light the middle candle to represent us becoming one. And then we'll blow out the outer candles. Everyone was shocked. Some people thought, what are you saying, that you're abandoning your families? Isn't this not the coming together of two families? And I was thinking, no, it's the coming together of me and Mo. And as much as that changes the relationship that you have with your parents and your brothers and sisters and your cousins and so on, I am now to cling to my wife. 
But the biggest protest we heard was from people saying, no, no, you're just two individual people who happen to share some stuff. And in fact, I was taken aside by a friend of mine who is a little bit older and was seriously concerned that I was about to take over Mo, that I was going to oppress her and make her like me. And he said, if you think you're going to do that, I can assure you you're not. At which point I was a bit shocked and taken aback because I had no intention. And those of you who've met Mo would also know that I know when the impossible things are going to happen. It's not going to happen. But this idea that somehow when we got married, we were committing ourselves completely to each other and that we were becoming one, not just physically, but spiritually and in all many different kinds of ways, was shocking. This idea of commitment, this idea of being bound. What does it mean to leave your parents behind and become joined to each other? What does it mean for different relationships? For some people, their experience of marriage, unfortunately, has been some of what I've explained. That when they got married, they lost their own life, but their partner didn't lose theirs. For some people, marriage has not been the bountiful existence that they'd hoped. It has been very limiting and sometimes very difficult. But I want us to consider a couple of things. We talk of God being love. We talk of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being united in that one, united as one and in one. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each who put the other first. The Son, who always spoke of the Father. The Spirit that always guides us to the Son. The Father, who whenever he speaks, is talking of his Son. Each making way, each working together, each putting the other first. But each, not being three individuals, but the one God. A love that frees and enables. In France recently, there was a big protest. You'll have seen some of it on the news because it's starting to happen here too. But there was a particular bridge that lovers would go up to and they would swear their undying love for each other and they would padlock on the bridge. Then they threw the key into the river. The idea being that unless you're a very good swimmer, you're not going to get the key back out the river, and therefore that lock is sealed, just as they are now sealed in love. Now, some of the authorities and what tends to make the news is that this has happened so many times, it's ruining the bridges, that the bridges are now bowing under the weight and it's destroying the fabric. But there's been another protest that's come from the French, which I thought was more worthy of thought rather than the physical danger. A padlock ties things down. We use padlocks to lock doors. We use padlocks to seal chains and stop people taking our bikes. We use padlocks to stop things from being moved, to stop things from being taken. A padlock secures things in one place. They said, this is not love. Love is something that frees people. Love is something that enables someone to live. And as we wonder ourselves, how do our relationships change when we marry and commit ourselves to one person? When we commit ourselves to someone else, it is so that they can live. It is so that they can live life to the fullness. And we do all that we can to support and commit ourselves in that. And they mutually, likewise, are committing themselves to us. 
Is this not what it meant that said men should love their wives as Christ loves the church? Sacrificing all that we have so that the wife can have fullness of life. But then isn't that what God has done from the beginning with us? Everything we have read until now has been an act of love towards us. Everything God has done for us has been an act of love that has cost us nothing. For it is God that created the world and gave us life. For it is God who gives us the breath we breathe. And as when we come to celebrate communion, it is the Lord himself that has enabled us to, re- to, rele- to receive that life. We know that if we were to carry on reading through Genesis, our relationship with each other is not as it should be. Our relationship with the world around us does not remain as it should be. And our relationship with God does not remain as it should be. But we are gathered here because of the sacrifice that Christ made so that we could live. Having thrown away the gift of life that we were first given, he made the sacrifice so that we could receive that life again. By his death, we live. By his sacrifice, we are alive. The first place in the Bible that the word love appears is in Genesis 22, when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. The first context of love is of that sacrifice. Why is it people are so scared of that commitment? Why are people so scared... It's because we've been hurt. It's because we have committed ourselves to other people who have then let us down. It's because we have trusted someone who then betrayed that trust. It's because we find ourselves putting ourselves out and it not being reciprocated. And so it may say that, yes, we were created to be in relationship, but relationships hurt. Relationships are painful. People aren't always there for us when we need them. I would rather it was just me and God because why do I need other people around me? Other people are the problem. When Christ died for our sins, he died for theirs also. For it is in our errors, in our failure to trust, in our not being trustworthy ourselves, in the not being there, that sin brings death and causes division. And so as we celebrate communion and remember the life that we have because God has restored our relationship with him, by enabling us to be forgiven, to forgive, to be healed and to heal, to live and to give life, we are celebrating that the Lord has taken away those barriers that split us up, that stop us from loving, stop us from relying, stop us from trusting. And send us into our dark corners where we want to be alone. We were made in God's likeness to love, to live, and to live as one one body, one church, and one in Christ.
Before we come to communion, let's sing hymn number 633, Made in God's Image. Father, we thank you for the gift of each other, for the ability to love and care for each other. We pray, Lord, for those who feel isolated, for those who have no one. Lord, this is a desperate situation. And so we ask that by work of your Spirit in their hearts, that they would be brought to a place of trust, a place where they are confident to trust. And that you would place them into the hearts of those who are around them, who are able to care, to help, and enjoy their company. Lord, we pray for the healing and for the forgiveness and reconciliation that may need to take place first for this to happen. We pray, Lord, for the refugees that are fleeing horrendous situations, for those who seek and desire a safer life for their families those who have turned to us for help. We do ask, Lord, and pray that they find the refuge, the place of safety that they seek. May we here, who are far away from the front line, do what we can. But most of all, Lord, may they find a security and a peace in their heart from you that will enable them to settle once they have stopped running. Lord, we pray for those that cause the atrocities. 
For those who feel the need to kill and who fail to see others as the same as them. Who discriminate and act from a place of fear and hatred. Lord, we pray for your intervention in their lives. That just as you stopped Paul in his tracks and made him see what he was doing, may you open their eyes and hearts to see the people. That they would see that humanity in others, whose image and likeness, like themselves, the image of you in which we were all created. We pray, Lord, also for those who are ill or in need of comfort. And have suffered pain in such a way that no human words or touch can make a difference. May you comfort them, Lord. Encourage them and sustain them through their grief and their illness. And may we continue to show your love and your patience and generosity towards them as they go through this time. Knowing that in all things, Lord, you bring us hope. We give you all these things to you, Lord, as the one who hears the one who sees, the one who acts. And we pray that until that day when you return and all is made new, that all suffering ceases and all division is ended. That until that day you would work in us and through us to be a source of hope to others, that a better day is coming. In your compassion, may comfort, encouragement and hope never be far from any. Amen. Let us now uplift the offering. Father, we thank you that you are not just the God of the spiritual, but of the physical also. And we thank you for the provisions that we have received this week, for the food we have eaten and for the places we slept and the clothes that we wear. We thank you, Lord, for our work and we thank you, Lord, for the money that we receive. And from this, Lord, we offer to you this financial offering.
that you would use it for your glory, for your purposes here in Hillhead, that it would achieve far more than money alone can on its own. Amen. As we come to the table, let us now sing for everyone born a place at the table.
Communion is a celebration of life, of the gift of life. But not just the life that we received when we were born of our mothers, but of the life that we received by being born again in Christ. Our life has cost a sacrifice. And in these elements of bread and wine, we remember that sacrifice. We may not fully understand why or how, but we accept and we receive. But as we gather, as we remember that sacrifice, it's worth pondering on how the Lord has called us to remember. Sometimes when we remember someone's life, we have a moment's silence. Maybe we have a few mementos that mean nothing to anyone else, but mean the world to us. Some people wear black. Maybe there's something you do differently. And the Lord could have chosen so many different ways for us to remember what he has done. To remember his death. But he chose this. He chose an act of fellowship. It is the Lord's desire that we gather together and we eat and we drink together. That we come together as one. Of those who know him. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians and rebuked them for the way they took communion. It wasn't because they were eating the wrong bread or drinking the wrong wine. It was because although they were performing the act of communion, they were not a community that they were not coming together spiritually. That there was not any care amongst them and that those that were going without went without amongst those that had much. It is the Lord's desire that by his death we are united and drawn together as one. And what better way to do that than to eat and drink and have a meal together. To fellowship together. So before we take communion, let us just take a moment's reflection, not only to prepare our hearts and to remember, but to also ask the Lord that he would encourage us in our desire for fellowship. On the night he was betrayed, on the night he knew that he would be arrested and tortured, He gathered his friends around him and he shared a meal with them. And in that midst of the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body, which will be broken for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we will never fully comprehend or understand your love for us and what you did for us. but we enjoy the life you've given us and live with the hope of the life to come. As we eat this bread and take this wine, Lord, may you restore our hearts and bring to mind those things that we need to remember. Those things that we need to let go. And that's something of you that we've maybe forgotten. Amen. If you eat the bread as you receive it.
when, he took, when supper was ended, he took the cup and he again turned to his disciples and said, take, drink this. This is my blood which will be shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. Do this in memory of me. When you receive the cup, hold on and we will drink it as one body together. Let us continue our worship as we sing hymn number 451. Now let us from this table arise. enable life to be lived by us and those around us. May the example of his Son and the joy of his Spirit be evident in our speech, in our thoughts, deeds and actions. May we carry the light of the world into the world, lighting the darkness and bringing life to those in despair. May God be glorified and his people rejoice for the work of his hands and the actions of his people. 